Do you think it's too on the nose to open up with like the actual show prologue? That's a little on the nose, isn't it? If you it? do the one that they do in the pilot, it's too on the nose. But if you do, if we do the short, the short version, version, I mean, the short version is it, like that says, like here's the show. Yeah, it does. It's the best way we should write our own like that for us. We we should. So, or for now, we can just you know, hey, future me, insert the short version. Water. the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe... Aang can save the world. Hello, and welcome to The Pie Show. I'm Colton. And I'm Kelly. And today, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite shows, Avatar The Last Airbender. We are starting from the beginning with Book One, Episode One, The Boy in the Iceberg. We open on a brother-sister who stumble across a boy who's been frozen in an iceberg for a hundred years. They take him home to their small fishing village, and we find out that someone has been searching for him, a young Fire Nation prince. The boy and the girl go to explore an uh, abandoned warship, and in doing so, get caught in a trap. And that is our pilot. For the boy in the iceberg. Avatar, the last airbender. We have a lot to cover in this episode. It's right at the beginning. It's the first one. And we have this whole big new world to talk about. Can we talk about this opening? Yeah, we can talk about this opening. Okay. When I watched it the first time, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, I'm feeling this. This is interesting. When I watched it for... This is my, you know, second time I've I said it I've said it before, but you know, this is my first rewatch of the show. And oh my god. Like it just it's so so much of the show is like boom, right off the bat. It's powerful in in, in its language choices too. Something that stuck out to me was Katara saying the ruthless firebenders. And I was like, wow, they really like laid it on thick to start out. Mm-hmm. the the whole series so that you get the vibe right off the bat which i think is i think is really interesting because the series is only 60 some odd episodes and they make use of that time so effectively because of things like that they establish in the first mention of the fire nation that it's this ruthless you know society that sweeps over the world and takes over everything and being so overt in the characterization like that I think really goes a long way towards making it so that later on in the show they can subvert expectations and they can dive deeper and show that there is nuance in these instances that 
were previously presented as very, you know, black and white. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I agree. It's, I find it the quickest world build ever. If I ever had to DM and I needed to build a world for my, for my players, I would take the opening to Avatar and just replace each like little sentence with the little bits. (laughs) I would just deviate from that because that paragraph to open the show sets up, here's the setting, here's the bad guys, here's the good guys, here's the, okay, these are the people this is happening to, and here's this whole element of the elements that you don't understand at all and we think you got it it go off it's like the cartoon equivalent of just like block text lettering flowing past the screen to exposit the entire world to the audience in the very beginning of your story it's star wars it's the star wars opening crawl i was thinking it's kind of like when you watch an anime uh, opening song, mm. and it gives you the whole it gives you the whole season in that in that one song. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know the language that the lyrics are being sung in, you you get it, you get it. It felt it felt very much like that. And I have to say, in in rewatching it, I was surprised with how many not just book long arcs, but series long arcs are set up right from the get-go my favorite thing about this show and you know shows that are supposedly that are that are meant for children the audience's children is ones that treat the audience as smart and this show in the pilot treats the audience as smart it's you're gonna pick this up we're introducing some crazy things here that haven't been said and lingo and every and settings and creatures but we we you'll get it you'll get it and i think the big thing that really sets that up is the intro to the episode itself so colton i have watched this show many times many many times but I've never bothered to watch the beginning of the ep- of the very first episode again. And there is so much more packed in there that I did not remember. It really builds the lore of, hey, we're in a hundred year war and gives the perspective of the world over a hundred years in, what, less than five minutes? Like let's introduce let's introduce to you the entire concept of our world of earth bending and bending in general, and say that it's a natural element of this world, and then say, oh yeah, and there's a war. Oh yeah, there's someone who controls it all. Oh yeah, he's gone. That's a lot to pack in. And I I think one of the things that really grabbed me the the first time I watched it was the dis- the the way that we we find out Katara is describing the function of the avatar and i have this sort of 
personal headcanon after you know watching the whole show that Katara is telling the story to us, the audience. And this is, you know, how she opens it up. And so the way she presents the function of the Avatar in society is right from, the, you know, our first introduction is the Avatar's job is to maintain balance amongst all of these different subsets of society. Now, my question is, so I, I like how you said that, you know, that this is Katara telling the story after the fact in a way, because we hear a lot more of Katara's life in it. She talks about her dad leaving for war. She talks about um, being with her grandmother and being with her brother. And it made me think about like, okay, Katara is the one telling this story. What would it be like if, if Sokka told the intro? What would it sound like? What would sound like from Zuko giving his perspective on the opening? You know, um, explaining these are the four elements. This is this is what happened a hundred years ago. This is where we're at now. I feel like even just in siblings who had the same things happening to them would have such a vastly different perspective on the same simple setting of the story but to hear it told in Katara's voice to start the whole series is just it it feels powerful I don't it it's it made me shut up as a little kid like oh oh (laughs) he's telling me something I need I need to listen well it's like it's it's like it's a D&D game you know everybody gets really quiet when the DM drops that sweet lore on you and and all of that world building that sweet, sweet lore. Gotta love a lore drop. I, th- I love the lore drops, especially there's... Uh, they make at least two references in this episode to smartly explain bending. Uh, Sokka, you know, is like, with your magic water, and she's like, it's not magic, it's bending. And then there's another comment. He's not magically flying, he's airbending. And it's so sassy and it's so like, um, excuse me, that really it, it says, no, no, this is not magic. We are taking the, the concept of magic out of this. This is a natural thing that happens in this world. And even though like, even though she's the only waterbender of, of her tribe and he's the only airbender, these are things that you should be familiar with. I have a question for you, Colton. Yeah. Katara and Sokka are brought by this current to the iceberg, to the the hidden iceberg that he is in. Do you think this current is a naturally occurring current? Or do you think there is some kind of spiritual element going on behind it? Because I never questioned it before this rewatch. But I saw it and I'm like, wow, that came on quick. And oh, that that ended real quick, just out of nowhere. And they're right at the iceberg. Perfect timing in a way. I think that's a really interesting idea because. My my initial inclination is that it is a naturally occurring current. I don't see a whole lot of um, representations or, or instances of destiny. 
in the show as a whole. One of the things that I really liked upon the first watching was that pretty much all of the characters are presented as having an element of choice in their actions and having free will and ownership over their actions and decisions. And there are brief mentions of destiny here and there from mostly side characters looking to exert their desires on our, on our main characters. But there is not at least compared to some other mainstream media there, there's not the sense of, you know, you must do this. It's, you know, you're destined to do this. There's, I mean, yeah, Aang is a chosen one, but he's a chosen one in a line of chosen ones. But Katara, in her telling of the story in, in the prologue, says, I believe Aang can save the world. She hears the call for Aang that he's. He's there to save the world. And she spends, you know, down the line, a lot of her is saying, well, you're going to save the world. You're going to save the world. She doesn't say how. No one, some people try and put on how he's going to save the world. But this concept of the call to adventure, it called both of them, but they didn't know what it was. They just saw each other in a way. I want to come back to that in a minute because I have thoughts on the call to adventure and Katara and Aang. But before I do, I think Katara believes that Aang is the one that will save the world. And there are, there are conversations about Aang's responsibility to save the world. But very there are very few instances and it really feels like the the writers aren't specifically trying to move away from the idea of like ang will save the world because ang must save the world because it is predetermined as a part of ang's destiny that he has to save the world what's the difference between a responsibility to save the world and a destiny to save the world Aang is the Avatar, and the Avatar has the role in their world of maintaining balance amongst the four elements. As opposed to in a different franchise, like Harry Potter is just a kid. He becomes destined to save the world as a result of Voldemort's actions, but he doesn't have a responsibility to do so. He wasn't signed up as Voldemort killer from like, he wasn't assigned that job. He wasn't, a, he wasn't signed up Voldemort killer from birth. He was signed up later on, but it's, it's, there's, there's no cosmic force compelling Aang to save the world. Another thing, if, if, so my, my perspective of potential a spiritual collide in a way is, what if this is not about Aang, this, this call, this current um, as you would, this is about Katara, who is the last waterbender from her tribe, from her side of the globe, who's waterbending in this odd area, like away from everybody. They have to fly a whole day, night to get back home. It takes them pretty far. 
she's water bending and you know as one of her first times in this remote area and then it takes her to the one person who could work on water bending with her on that half of the globe if there's a kind of spiritual element maybe it's not necessarily about ang maybe she is the one who's drawn to ang maybe that outside force is acting upon her for balance and not necessarily ang because if it was Aang, he's been in that iceberg for a hundred years. Oh my god, I never thought of it like that. And that is why you wanted to do a podcast with me. I never thought of it like that because Katara... She's the narrator of the story. Katara is the one that helps bring Aang back to balance. Katara is the one that can reach out and, and help to be the avatar for the avatar. Guitar is the narrator. Yeah, wow. I just, uh, my head is exploding right now <laughs> thinking uh, you've just completely changed the way I'm going to watch the rest of the show. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could do that on the pilot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was really paying attention to Katara's feminist rant. I mean, her rant, her getting mad at her brother changes the whole world. Her getting mad at her brother changes the whole world. It's a game changer. I, I, yes. 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 And I love that moment. I love that moment. And I loved it so much more this time around because we find out later on in the show that waterbending is about serenity. That's where waterbending comes from. But in arguably the most important instance of waterbending in the series, the one that wakes Aang up and kicks off the series, we have an instance of a waterbender waterbending out of anger. Anger and frustration and the polar opposite of water, the emotions that firebending is born from. And I will point out to you, in later episodes in the series, times where her, ba- where her bending is most powerful, are where she has those fiery, angry emotions. I have at least three off the bat. <laughs> we, need, we need to keep track of this. <laughs> I really love watching the style of people's bending and being able to compare. So we go to you know Zuko, who very much... I know I'm jumping. But we go to Zuko, who is working on the basics still. He has this, he has the angry, fiery, energetic, emotional element that Katara has. But his uncle explains he's still working on the basics and is not ready for the next level. Makes me wonder, okay, what's the next level? If it's not emotions that drive it like that, if it's not that fire that determination emotion what is it it's like Iroh says it's the breath the breath and the energy in the body turning into fire and I think that that's definitely going to be something that I I want to talk about later because there is there's a scene that I'm thinking of um, in a in a later episode that really harkens back to that in such a poignant way but i don't want to i don't want to get too much into that until we get there 
Um, but yeah, Katara, the anger that saved the world. I also love if we look at Katara as the narrator. Such a good foil is Sokka, her brother, who becomes the everyman. Katara is the narrator that, like, omnipotent in a way, went the way she speaks over the the top of the episode, and then. There's Sokka, the everyman, who's just like, he's like, with your magic stuff and, you know, that. It's not magic, it's waterbending. Get it right. And his everyman of, there's a war, we're dealing with the present. This is, he is very immediate minded and he is, he is honestly one of my favorite characters. So seeing him at his, you know, this is baby Sokka. Baby sexist little Sokka. Baby sexist little Sokka. I think we should go into our next set of character introductions, which is Aang and Zuko. I think you mean Iroh and Zuko. Iroh and Zuko? We need to talk about Iroh's introduction. Iroh's introduction is such a beautiful, beautiful moment. He's he's sitting at the table. He's drinking the tea. He's drinking the tea in the first episode. He's drinking the tea. And the tea is strong. And he has his little it's not it's not pie show, but he has his little game with like the little tiles that have the elements of all of the different of all the different elements and which one is he holding? He's holding the air tile. What? And if you look at the board, it's the board is absolutely riddled with fire and water and earth. And there is a single air tile in the shot in Iroh's hand. That was a good catch because I did not catch that. I had to pause the episode to catch it. I saw the tile (laughs) and I was like, no, I need to Netflix. Stop. (laughs) I guess I did not hit the pause quick enough on that one. Oh, my goodness. He is holding the air tile and it is beautiful. Ooh. <laughs> Zuko and Aang. Zuko and Iroh. <laughs> well, I always think Zuko and Aang because they're introduced so close to each other and so differently from each other. Honestly, the first time I watched the first time I watched this series, I did not get that Zuko was a kid. My first, my first seeing of this pilot, he seemed to me like in his twenties or something like that. I never got that he was a child, or you know, like teenager or whatever. I even though they say he's in the basics, and so he seemed he always seemed very grown up to me, and he's a grown up. And then you introduce Ang, who's just like, come closer, want to go penguin sledding, like that abrasive, childish goofiness in comparison to someone I later understood is also a child but had to grow up so quick I found that so jarring of the completely different worlds within this show well the the show very much does not present Zuko like an adult in in all in the majority of the shots that we get with Aang ex- in the first episode, ex- except when he's flying and and airbending, they're all shot from you know three quarters high above, and like we're always looking down at Aang. 
for so much of the episode where we're taller than him we're we're looking down at him he's looking up at katara who's physically taller than he is or he's looking up at grand grand who's physically taller than he is and with zuko most of the shots of zuko are from below and the first couple of shots that we get of him are you know the camera's low to the ground he's tall and domineering and in possession of what we are told is basic firebending but for all we know it that doesn't mean anything i mean guys shooting fireballs out of his hands the only bending the only bending we've seen so far is katara struggling to get a little ball of water and ang standing up without his hands and let's be real the ponytail makes him look taller and older i think the confidence to shave the rest of his head makes him seem yeah, older yeah yeah that would do it too that and and the fact that he's not in search of a teacher or fun or learning. He's out to capture his honor. And he's been on his own. Even if he's with his uncle, it, he seems very much, he carries himself. He's in command. He seems in charge in this first episode of everything. He's fighting these two other grown soldiers. So as a kid, I was like, oh, he's a grown up. That's it. This grown up is going after this kid. Yeah, even. I mean, I I didn't originally watch the show in childhood. I I, I missed it. Um, I totally slept on it. So my my first time watching the show was a couple of months ago, and he just read like an angry adult with some issues. He didn't, or like you know, a a young adult with some leftover you know teenage angst. Maybe he's eighteen. Maybe he's nineteen. Yeah, and that that really is what that in my head that age disparity and even the way they view their age disparity was like, oh no, this little boy gonna get it. There is no way he's getting out of this. <laughs> <laughs> that other guy seems really in control. He's really confident about it, and I I didn't want to question his confidence. Yeah, yeah, and I think it probably a thing to talk about more you know later on in the show but it's really interesting how all of these all of our modern characters are they're they're essentially teenagers they're basically kids but they're framed by each other and by the world for the most part as adults because we are inside of a hundred year war and war makes people grow up faster I would say war makes people grow up faster, but I wouldn't say that everyone views them as adults because the view that we mainly get throughout the series is just the kids. The only other time that they're interacting with adults, most of the adults defer to the 112-year-old child because he has many lives within him. There are not many who are... Unless the characters carry themselves a different way. Like I noted, there was this one part where Katara is sledding with Aang. And she's like, I haven't done this since I was a kid. And he's like, you still are a kid. He he doesn't get it. So they, some of the characters have to carry themselves as older, even if other people will still treat them as children. 
or see them as children. Soldiers aren't going to fight them as children because soldiers are soldiers, but that's their main interactions with adults. Most adults are trying to kill them. Well, to be fair, most of the adults they interact with that are not elderly adults are soldiers. Speaking of elderly adults, Grand Grand. Grand Grand is not having any of this avatar, airbending, like, hullabaloo. She is having... Grand Grand does not ship Katang. She does not ship Katang. She is not about this. She looks him up, down, and is like, Mm-mm, you are not worthy. I don't care if you are the last airbender on Earth. Grand Grand is unimpressed. <laughs> I got to bring attention to some of the characters, some of the creatures that we have seen so far, because I love me a cute animal. Cute animal alert. There are tiger seals that are. Is that what they're called? Because I wrote down tiger seals in my notes because I just like it stripes like a tiger and it's clearly a seal. I'm going to call it a tiger seal. But like, is that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> what does the fan wiki say? Oh, I don't know. You keep going. I'm going to look this up. Okay. The tiger seals. And then we are also introduced to the sky bison. A.K.A. Appa, who has been frozen in an iceberg for a hundred years. And I just really love the like, can I fly? And we're just going to rest on that for a little bit. We're just going to we'll wait it out. I love that. I love that we get some character right there from Appa, the Sky Bison. I looked it up. What is it? The Avatar fan wiki says, The tiger seal, also known as the zebra seal or the polar sea lion, is an animal that lives in the icy bays of the South Pole. All right, so now you got to look something up for me because what were these penguins? Because they just say penguins, but those penguins got some extra flippers. Uh, The four flipper penguins? Yeah. Are they penguin seals? I know that's that sounds wrong. Otter penguins. Otter penguins. I gotta say, I was a huge fan of the tiger seals. Those those were my favorite of the like new introduced creatures so far. Cause yeah, I'm gonna rank them. And you can disagree, but it won't change my mind. You're putting tiger seals over Appa? Appa? I've heard it both ways. No, but I am going to put tiger seals above Appa for now. For now. Appa, Appa will climb. Will climb. But in, in the context of that episode, I'm going to give it to the tiger seals. I want to get into the concept of the call to adventure because this show I think puts a really interesting twist on it. I noticed this time around that at at this point in the show we effectively have two protagonists. We have two journeys. We have Katara who is on her journey to learn waterbending and we have Aang who is on his journey to master the four elements, and save the world. Both of our characters experience a call to adventure. 
but the call to adventure for each of our characters is expressed through the other. They are called through each other. They motivate and drive each other, which I find really fascinating. I like how how you put it, that there are two protagonists in this world. And I think Aang would not be driven to master the four elements without Katara, and Katara would not be driven to... Katara would not have the means to master water, to go after her dream of mastering waterbending without Aang. I feel like she is, as a character, is determined enough to like, she'd sit there at home just flapping her arms around trying to figure it out. But given the war, given the fact that she is isolated in a small fishing village on on the South Pole, she doesn't have the opportunity. He gives her the opportunity. He says, oh yeah, I can easily fly you across the world. And while it's scary, she takes that leap of faith. And for Aang, while it's scary, the idea of having to save the world and master the elements, he takes that leap of faith in Katara that, all right, I'll start with waterbending because she's right here. And she, she wants the same thing as I do in a way. I don't think you get one going on their path without the other, which is very different from other shows that I've seen. Yeah, I think that's one of the the real strengths of Avatar is you know, right now we have we have two protagonists. We'll we'll, you know, build a party as we go. But I think where the show really shines is that none of the characters would embark on any aspect of their journey without all of the others. They all, all of our, you know, our heroes drive each other in their, in their respective journeys and, you know, to, to be better, whatever that means for them. I think that's part of the reason why I really love this show is that it is two heroes driving each other as opposed to most shows you easily could have done this, you know, the bad guy is after him and that's why he has to do it. That's his drive. That's his call. It's revenge. It's whatever. It, it could have been so easy. But they built, they built it together. They built these two paths together to weave between each other and move each other forward and grow together. And that's much harder to do than, ah, I have to beat you. You're the bad guy. Ah, I have to beat you. You're the good guy. It's so easy to do it that way. But to have two good-hearted, motivated kids drive each other to greatness together and want to see the other one succeed is so refreshing. I want to talk about Sokka. Sokka over the series takes one of some of the like biggest leaps in character developments. He is so closed, 
closed minded in a way at the beginning of this of the beginning of the series. You know, he sets off Katara on this feminist rant. He says, just watch and learn, Katara. He is so in the know and he doesn't have bending. He doesn't have bending. He feels fine about it. And he looks down on bending. He looks down on bending. He calls her he calls her a freak. He oh, calls great. her weird. Another bender you two can sit around and waste time all day together. Bending is a waste of time to him. There are so much more important things. But the thing about Sokka in this episode that I feel is taken for granted in a way is is the fact that when he is giving his speech about how to be a great warrior and you and it turns and it's to toddlers. It is to young toddlers and it's a joke and Sokka is the butt of the joke for a long time. He is the joke man. He is the funny man. And it's oh so funny that he's talking to children and trying to prepare children to be warriors. But what he says is that until your father's return from the war, they are counting on you. And you look around, they do that huge, and do that pan shot of the village when they say, Aang, this is the village. Village, this is Aang. He is the oldest male in the village. It is just him. And you look at those toddlers and it's funny, but then you realize he was one of those toddlers. And here he is left behind to protect the people that he loves. And he, the village has been they talk about under attack, they show the warship, they show everything. And you see in Sokka, him remembering what it was like to lose people and to not feel prepared as one of those children. And all this that he is now is from that. He hasn't, he hasn't been able to grow out of that role yet of I am the protector. I am the only thing that stands between my sister and annihilation, like between the world and, and my world and annihilation. He feels that on his shoulders, that weight. And I feel like it's so subtle because he is the joke, because he is the funny man that you, because they're covering him when snot, you forget that there is so much weight on his shoulders that going otter penguin sledding is not important. It's not important to him. It's not important in his world. It's it's nothing. And anyone who is going to kind of shift that uh, that perspective, that lens away from what he feels is important, which is the safety of his family, is is a threat. Is a threat to how he um how he maintains the safety of his entire village he's alone and i think katara being a bender makes him feel even more alone because she's one of the closest people in age to him and she can't relate she can't relate to feeling powerless against benders invading their invading their small village i think that's a really insightful take. I don't think he even realizes any of that himself. Like, I don't think 
like the emotion is there and the feeling is there and like you said the weight on his shoulders is there but i don't i don't think that he is viewing himself through that lens that you're viewing him at all and i think that's where a lot of the disconnect happens and and why the way he presents himself to the world is so brash and abrasive because he's feeling all of this weight on him and all of this pressure and all of this isolation and he's feeling it in such a way that he can't understand it that he can't label it it's just there all the time and i would say an interesting comparison to him is zuko and that sokka the difference of taking it out in kind of an anger because Sokka doesn't do it. His brashness is not angry. It's, it's, it's snarky. It's, he cuts it with comedy. And I think that's because his audience, his audience is, is children. His audience is his sister who he loves and has to take care of. His audience is his grandmother. He's not going to be like, like nasty to his grandmother who's lost her entire family. Like, He's not going to do that. Okay, well, now I'm thinking about Zuko. But but Zuko grows up in a... He has... His surrounding and setting is military. It is training. It is, you know... And also, he has bending. So he has has a power that he can use. Sokka doesn't. And I think... First watch of series of this series Sokka can get a bad rap of oh he's just the sexist like jokey guy he doesn't take anything seriously and I'm like I would argue that he takes things a bit more seriously as much as he jokes he's the one who has been carrying that weight and that moment where he talks to the toddlers is where they show it I I agree and I would not have been able to articulate that thought in the way that you did, but I do definitely see it. And we we talked, we spoke about the show as I was watching it the first time. And one of the things that always stuck with me after our conversations was how much a fan of Sokka you were. and. I definitely, on my first watch, for most of the show, was not. (laughs) I don't think I became a Sokka fan until about halfway through book three. And then it clicked in my brain. And it's, I gotta say, the second time around, it's a totally different experience watching this character. And I would say the first time I watched the series, I was not a huge fan of book one Sokka. He wasn't, he wasn't my least favorite, but I was not a fan of him as a also young independent woman, um, like Katara. I was not a fan of some of his jokes or some of his comments or, you know, talking down to the other kids. But season two, he starts to find his role in the group. And that's where I started to kind of fall in love and go, okay, all right, I see, I see where you're coming from. And to really see him grow 
but it was um, first time, first book one pilot. Like, no, no, get this guy out of here. Knock him over into the water. We done. I have a question. In your first rewatch. So now. In thinking of terms. Yes. In thinking of terms of growing up. Aang or Sokka, who kind of had the longest journey in a way. Ooh. Or 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 just compare comparing those journeys because those are pretty big journeys for both of them. The thing about those two journeys is they're sort of in this one regard foils to each other because Sokka, at least in my view, is someone who like he is he is he feels to me like a child masquerading as an adult, whereas in the context of the show. Aang is presented as an adult who is trying to maintain his childness. Aang spends so much time trying to cling to his youth. Rightfully so. He's 11 years old. He is a child. He should, he deserves to have that and to act like one. Sokka is how old is Sokka supposed to be like 13 in the show I think uh he's supposed to be 14 okay um I believe he talks like a 14 year old he has the attitude of a 14 year old and the humor of a 14 year old but he's constantly trying to make himself seem more adult we don't get to see him be a child until I think like book three is when we yeah. the first time we get to see Sokka be a child but then again when you think of him in comparison to Katara and Aang, who he spends his most time most time with, he is the adult in the room. Yeah, he is. You want to rant about Zuko? I always want to rant about Zuko. <laughs> I want to rant about Zuko so much. I have so many thoughts about Zuko. I honestly, I didn't have too many thoughts about Zuko. I only had one thought about Zuko. What was your one Zuko thought? And let me use that to focus my Zuko thoughts. Because if I don't focus my Zuko thoughts, I'm just going to go on like an hour long rant about his entire journey and arc and the whole show. And we're not going to have any content for future episodes. (laughs) I'm sure you'll find room. So my Zuko question is in regards to the very end of the episode. Did Zuko set that trap? And if so, how many traps around the world does Zuko have set up? You know what I mean? Like, like, oh, it could be booby trap. He was in the area. I'm like, I bet he went out and first thing he did was just set a bunch of traps in various places. And then I'll just go check on them from time to time. That seems a very Zuko strategy. That's like his MO, <laughs> what he's been doing for the last year is just setting traps and then... Checking in on them from time to time. This is how everybody else missed the Avatar. They didn't know how to make a good snare trap. They didn't leave out a a uh, like uh, a kite in, in on a bed of leaves with a pit underneath. They should have done that. I think that would have been an option. No, no, that's the problem. They all did do that. They all did leave tiger traps lying around. Mm. But the Avatar is an airbender and could just fly out. Mm. Metal bars. So finally, Zuko thinking outside the box. You can't use a tiger trap on an airbender. You have to use like the little the bear 
clamp trap thing. Yeah. So that was. Yeah, yeah. You step, you step on the little spot, and then the the teeth close up, and it like you know the heavy iron teeth. Yeah. Wrap your ankle. Yeah. And make it so you can't air bend your way yeah. out of there. Yeah, but that's not the first episode. Oh, right. The show does have that. I'm just I'm just talking in general. I'm not talking about this show. I'm just talking about like classic traps. Oh, I'm talking about the fact that I, I'm just I'm picturing Zuko just setting traps at various places around the world and that and going like, and now we wait. I don't like, think Okay, wow. I was with you right up until you said that because Zuko waiting. This, come on. I mean, he's not waiting. I don't think he's someone who waits. but. But I, I just, I was like, did Zuko set that trap? Because he, I feel like he's the only one who's still actively searching for the Avatar. And I'm sure you have thoughts on that. But I don't think that trap was for anybody but the Avatar from Zuko. I don't think that Zuko set that trap. Zuko is not a trap-setting individual at this point. I don't think that the Zuko that we see now is necessarily he's he's not a tactician. He's a brute. He's not going to capture the Avatar with his guile or with his cleverness. He's going to capture the Avatar by steamrolling him. By showing up with his force and his might and he's going to engage in a glorious battle and overpower the Avatar and gain his honor. That's his MO, which is why we have that shot of him training with the two firebenders under the tutelage of Iroh. And Iroh says that, you know, firebending comes from the breath, not from the muscles. Zuko is not trying to harness the energy within him and play to his own strength. He's trying to punch his way through the wall that has been put in front of him. And that's not the way to go about it, but that's what he's doing because that's all he knows how to do because that's all that has ever been told to him is what he can do because of the circumstances of his upbringing. I think on that point, what's really interesting to me is that there's no explanation of the my honor there's, 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 he talks about honor, but there's no explanation yet. And I'll be curious to see at what point do we get that? Do we get to understand why catching the avatar is reclaiming his honor? Well, fortunately for you, we get that very soon. <laughs> I would hope so. Is that the next episode? Is that how we dovetail out of this? Uh, one more thing. Uncle is just really vibing his vacation. Like, I feel Uncle Iroh is all about this vacation in a way. And just... no. Iroh wants to sit on a boat and drink his tea and play his games and spend some quality time with his nephew. (laughs) And Zuko keeps trying to get in the way of that. He's like, I'm just trying to enjoy my time with you. Like, calm down, nephew. And yet, Iroh is such a good teacher. I love Uncle Iroh. He sees that his approach towards training Zuko is not working because Zuko doesn't want to hear that he's doing things wrong. Zuko doesn't want to hear that he needs to 
step back and look at firebending from a more fundamental level and from a more philosophic stance. He wants to be told, okay, here's the next lesson. And Iroh says, well, you want me to tell you here's the next lesson? Yeah, I'll give you the next lesson on my time. You have to wait for me to eat my dinner. Because if you're not going to listen to the lecture about patience, I'm going to demonstrate patience to you. I think what's great about Uncle really vibing his vacation is the fact that it is in such contrast to what Zuko's mission is. He's like, we are on a mission. We are here to capture the Avatar. This is what we're going to do. And it gives that distance of like, you know he's been missing for a hundred years, right? And if you didn't have Uncle just sitting back having his jasmine tea and relaxing in a way, I don't think you'd get the kind of uh, wild goose chase that Zuko is on. I don't think you'd understand. I think you'd understand of like, ah, in this world, people can live for, you know, the Avatar specifically can live for hundreds of years in a way. Like, I I wouldn't have gotten the understanding of that i would have been like this seems pretty urgent i don't know why this guy's just you know not paying attention to his grandson with to his nephew with this super important mission i think the contrast was really important i agree and i just want to add that um zuko is all about doing whereas iroh is all about being and the, the success that they see in in the mission that Zuko wants to actively engage in, find the Avatar, is accomplished just by being on the ship. They're, they don't do anything to find the Avatar. They happen to see him. The Avatar finds him, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, basically. the Avatar like, walks. The Avatar straight... shoots a giant <laughs> sky beam into the air and then walks into walks a trap straight into and a Fire Nation a ship. Like he's like, hmm, I don't know anything about this war. Let me walk my way into a Fire Nation ship and sit here and wait until the people who started the war come over and say hi. So I'm ready to watch another episode. Me too. I am very excited. Can I have a little Katang moment? You can have a little Katang moment. Uh, can you stop asking me for permission to have moments on our show? Because <laughs> it makes me feel weird when you ask for permission to do things. Well, specifically the Katang moment, because I know we're not really going to get into like the shipper stuff and everything, but there is a really beautiful moment and I would like to share it. And that is maybe there is a bright side. I did get to meet you, which is really cute. He wakes up and she's there and just, but that moment of like, maybe there is a bright side to being trapped in an iceberg for a hundred years. What's that? I got to meet you. Kid comes in swinging and I gotta say, I appreciated it. Kid's got game after a hundred years in an iceberg. What is everyone else's excuse? Of course kid's got game. He had a (laughs) hundred years to work on the line. You left me in some ice to think for a hundred years. I've had some pretty good I'll have some pretty good lines too. I loved it. Me too. If you liked the pie show, please be sure to rate, 
and review us on Apple Podcasts, as well as your other podcast apps. Make everybody listen to The Pie Show for all your Avatar The Last Airbender rewatch feelings. Sokka time, waka pow. And then I'll just start talking about Sokka.